द लॉ स्कूल ऑफ अमेरिका Expectation of privacy is a legal test which is crucial in defining the scope of the applicability of the privacy protections of the 4th Amendment to the United States Constitution. It is related to, but is not the same as, a right to privacy, a much broader concept which is found in many legal systems. Overall, expectations of privacy can be subjective or objective. Overview. There are two types of expectations of privacy. Subjective expectation of privacy. A certain individual's opinion that a certain location or situation is private varies greatly from person to person. Objective, legitimate, reasonable expectation of privacy, an expectation of privacy generally recognized by society and perhaps protected by law. Examples of places where a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy are a person's residence or hotel room and public places which have been specifically provided by businesses or the public sector in order to ensure privacy. such as public restrooms private portions of jailhouses or a phone booth in general one cannot have a reasonable expectation of privacy for things put into a public space there are no privacy rights in garbage left for collection in a public place other examples include pen registers that record the numbers dialed from particular telephones conversations with others though there could be a 6th amendment violation if the police send an individual to question a defendant who has already been formally charged a person's physical characteristics such as voice and handwriting what is observed pursuant to aerial surveillance that is conducted in public navigable airspace not using equipment that unreasonably enhances the surveying government officials vision anything in open fields for example a barn smells that can be detected by the use of a drug sniffing dog during a routine traffic stop even if the government official did not have probable cause or reasonable suspicion to suspect that drugs were present in the defendant's vehicle and paint scrapings on the outside of a vehicle while a person may have a subjective expectation of privacy in his or her car it is not always an objective one unlike a person's home privacy and search the expectation of privacy is crucial in distinguishing a legitimate reasonable police search and seizure from an unreasonable one A search occurs for purposes of the 4th Amendment when the government violates a person's reasonable expectation of privacy. In Katz v United States, 1967, Justice Harlan issued a concurring opinion articulating the two-prong test later adopted by the US Supreme Court as the test for determining whether a police or government search is subject to the limitations of the 4th Amendment. Governmental action must contravene an individual's actual subjective expectation of privacy. expectation of privacy must be reasonable in the sense that society in general would recognize it as such to meet the first part of the test the person from whom the information was obtained must demonstrate that a in fact had an actual subjective expectation that the evidence obtained would not be available to the public in other words the person asserting that a search was conducted must show that they kept the evidence in a manner designed to ensure its privacy the first part of the test is related to the notion in plain view If a person did not undertake reasonable efforts to conceal something from a casual observer as opposed to a snoop, then no subjective expectation of privacy is assumed. The second part of the test is analyzed objectively, would society at large deem a person's expectation of privacy to be reasonable? If it is plain that a person did not keep the evidence at issue in a private place, then no search is required to uncover the evidence. For example, There is generally no search when police officers look through garbage because a reasonable person would not expect that items placed in the garbage would necessarily remain private.
an individual has no legitimate expectation of privacy and information provided to third parties. In Smith v. Maryland, 1979, the Supreme Court held individuals have no legitimate expectation of privacy regarding the telephone numbers they dial because they knowingly give that information to telephone companies when they dial a number. Therefore, there is no search where officers monitor what phone numbers an individual dials, although the Congress has enacted laws that restrict such monitoring. The Supreme Court has also ruled that there is no objectively reasonable expectation of privacy, and thus no search, when officers hovering in a helicopter 400 feet above a suspect's house conduct surveillance. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit held in 2010 that users did have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the contents of their email in United States v. Warshock, although no other court of appeals has followed suit. In Cyberspace An article by Picoslu and Octem, 2012, entitled Expectation of Privacy in Cyberspace, the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and an evaluation of the Turkish case starts by giving us operational definitions of concepts of privacy, expectation of privacy, and cyberspace. In providing these definitions, the authors were able to then present what kind of cyberspace they will be addressing and subsequently what time of legality they will talk about to address in an online setting. These definitions serve to have a better understanding of how they all work together. The authors identify that there needs to be policy to address privacy in the cyberspace. The article evaluates the extent of the law and how it can protect people's expectations of privacy within the cyber environment. The article talks about privacy expectations in cyberspace while discussing the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution. The Fourth Amendment provides citizens of the United States with security of themselves, their house, and from unreasonable searches and seizures. If these are violated, there are reasonable sanctions for the violating party. However, the article points out that the Fourth Amendment does not protect individuals from informational privacy. It has been established that since the government can seize any item then it is able to obtain access to the information they want or need. The article focuses and tells us that the Fourth Amendment and how it applies to decrypting an Internet communication and how it cannot trespass the reasonable expectation of privacy. In other words, this type of communication cannot violate the Fourth Amendment rights. Finally, the article presents the state of privacy during the time it was written and compares to the privacy in the Turkish judicial systems. The authors take particular notice to how there needs to be a strong political desire to secure privacy issues in society specifically in cyberspace. Court Cases In Florida v. Jardines the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on March 26, 2013 that police violated the Fourth Amendment rights of a homeowner when they let a drug-sniffing dog to the front door of a house suspected of being used to grow marijuana. In a 5-4 decision, the court said that police conducted a search when they entered the property and took the dog to the house's front porch. Since the officers had not first obtained a warrant beforehand, their search was unconstitutional, the court said. The court said the police officers violated a basic rule of the Fourth Amendment by physically intruding into the area surrounding a private home for investigative purposes without securing a warrant. When it comes to the Fourth Amendment, the home is first among equals, just as Scalia wrote. At the amendment's very core stands the right of a man to retreat into his own home and there be free from unreasonable government intrusion. Scalia added, this right would be of little practical value if the state's agents could stand in a home's porch or side garden and trawl for evidence with impunity. This case may provide some argument or protection in the area of reasonable expectation of privacy in one's home and curtilage given the rapid advancement of drone technology, particularly given law enforcement's stated intent to deploy these technologies. 
This question may well turn on the court's interpretation of the naked eye test, described in the earlier Sorolo case, in relation to the enhanced view test. It would seem enhanced views are achievable through the use of drone technology. See also, Kilo v. United States, 533 U.S. 27, 2001, precludes enhanced views from outside a home without a warrant, using thermal imaging. In Missouri v. McNeely, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that police must generally obtain a warrant before subjecting a drunken driving suspect to a blood test. The vote was 8 to 1, with Justice Clarence Thomas the lone dissenter. In R. V. Tesling, the Supreme Court of Canada identified that the defendant did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy with regards to the information policemen acquired from him. These officers obtained this information by using warrantless infrared imaging to monitor the respondent's home. The court tried to answer the questions of what can be expected to be covered by reasonable expectation of privacy. They specify that information that is covered under reasonable expectation of privacy is called deeply personal information. Matheson, 2008, offers the view that deeply personal information can be related to sensitivity. One common functional used to describe privacy and personal information is a matter of control. This type of information is to be treated within the choice of the individual that holds the information. However, the difference between deeply personal information and other information is that this particular type of information tends to be related to how vulnerable and sensitive an individual is to the exposure of said information. Matheson, 2008, tells us that it is particularly deemed deeply personal information if the personal information would weaken the individual's account or personal story about himself or others if shared. Matheson, 2008, states that, while questionable, the Supreme Court of Canada's decision was partly right because the defendant did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy when it came to the warrantless infrared search. In marketing, privacy has also been talked about in the context of business actions, consumer reaction, and regulatory efforts from both consumers and marketers' interaction. Milne and Shalini, 2010, presented the question of how both of these groups start and upkeep privacy boundaries. Information about the relationship between consumers and marketers has been defined by this fine line of what is the privacy a customer is willing to provide to the marketer. Milne and Shalini, 2010, used information gathered in a national online survey to compare three different groups of customers. They asked these groups questions around the limits of using information technology such as the use of cookies, biometrics, loyalty cards, radio frequency identification, text messaging, pop-up advertisements, telemarketing, and spam. The authors use these same surveys with groups of marketing managers and database vendors. This survey study presented results that provided discussion as there was a discrepancy in the answers from the customers and the marketers slash vendors. The customers' expectations around privacy were different from those of a marketer slash vendor. The difference in their answers prompted the Milne and Shalini, 2010, to advise for attention to this issue and ask for public policy to take notice of these findings. United Kingdom. Under British law, there is a concept relating to this, known as reasonable expectation of privacy. Now a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Law School of America In U.S. law, 
False light is a tort concerning privacy that is similar to the tort of defamation. The privacy laws in the United States include a non-public person's right to protection from publicity which puts the person in a false light to the public. That right is balanced against the First Amendment right of free speech. False light differs from defamation primarily in being intended to protect the plaintiff's mental or emotional well-being, rather than to protect a plaintiff's reputation as is the case with the tort of defamation and in being about the impression created rather than being about veracity. If a publication of information is false, then a tort of defamation might have occurred. If that communication is not technically false but is still misleading, then a tort of false light might have occurred. False light privacy claims often arise under the same facts as defamation cases, and therefore not all states recognize false light actions. There is a subtle difference in the way courts view the legal theories. False light cases are about damage to a person's personal feelings or dignity, whereas defamation is about damage to a person's reputation. The specific elements of the tort of false light vary considerably, even among those jurisdictions which do recognize this tort. Generally, these elements consist of the following. 1. A publication by the defendant about the plaintiff. 2. Made with actual malice, very similar to that type required by New York Times v. Sullivan in defamation cases. 3. Which places the plaintiff in a false light, and 4. That would be highly offensive, for example, embarrassing to reasonable persons. Some U.S. state courts have ruled that false light lawsuits brought under their state's laws must be rewritten as defamation lawsuits. These courts generally base their opinion on the premises that a. any publication or statement giving rise to a false light claim will also give rise to a defamation claim, such that the set of statements creating false light is necessarily, although not by definition, entirely within the set of statements constituting defamation, and b. The standard of what would be highly offensive or embarrassing to a reasonable person is much more difficult to apply than is the state's standard for defamation, such that the potential penalties for violating the former standard would have an unconstitutional or otherwise unacceptable chilling effect on the media. However, most states do allow false light claims to be brought, even where a defamation claim would suffice. Roughly two-thirds of states do not recognize the false light claim. The states that do recognize it will not allow plaintiff to maintain suit for both false light and defamation. Examples In People's Bank and Trust Company v. Globe International Incorporated, a tabloid newspaper printed the picture of a 96-year-old Arkansas woman next to the headline Special Delivery, world's oldest newspaper carrier, 101, quits because she's pregnant. I guess walking all those miles kept me young. The woman, who in fact was not pregnant, Nellie Mitchell who had run a small newsstand on the town square since 1963, prevailed at trial under a theory of false light invasion of privacy. She was awarded damages of $1.5 million. The tabloid appealed, generally disputing the offensiveness and falsity of the photograph, arguing that Mitchell had not actually been injured, and claiming that Mitchell had failed to prove that any employee of the tabloid knew or had reason to know that its readers would conclude that the story about the pregnant carrier related to the photograph printed alongside. The Court of Appeals rejected all of the tabloid's arguments, holding that it may be, that Mrs. Mitchell does not show a great deal of obvious injury, but Nellie Mitchell's experience could be likened to that of a person who had been dragged slowly through a pile of untreated sewage. Few would doubt that substantial damage had been inflicted by the one doing the dragging. In a case against Playgirl magazine, actor Jose Solano Jr. won a false light claim because of the placement of headlines around his cover photo. 
The court said the gist of the magazine's cover, which featured headlines like 12 sizzling centerfolds ready to score with you and TV guys. Primetime's sexy young stars exposed Putzolano in a false light by suggesting he might be pictured nude inside the magazine, even though the cover could not have given rise to a defamation claim. The case was then later reversed due to the fact that he was a limited public figure and that the magazine was newsworthy. A Fifth Circuit case helps elucidate the distinction between false light and defamation. Jeannie Braun was an entertainer who performed an amusement park act involving a swimming pig. Through deception, a company owned by Larry Flint, obtained her picture and placed it in a magazine of nationwide circulation devoted to the publication of lewd pictures of women and to sexual exploitation. A jury awarded Braun $30,000 on her defamation claim and $55,000 on her false light claims. The Fifth Circuit, however, held that Mrs. Braun could not recover under both theories, because they arose from a single publication. Nonetheless, the court instructed that if Braun waived her defamation claim, the district court should enter judgment on the false light claim. The court explained that the facts of this case and the nature of the damages suffered, primarily, personal humiliation, embarrassment, pain and suffering, fit more precisely the false light invasion of privacy theory than they do the defamation theory. The case of Warren Eastbond v. Julian Messner Incorporated is a leading New York Court of Appeals of the State of New York court case involving the civil tort of false light that involved, among other things, a knowing lie about a military decoration. Julian Messner Incorporated published a supposed biography of baseball great Warren Spahn, written by one Milton Shapiro. The biography was aimed at children. The biography was largely fictionalized but, in keeping with its genre and target audience, did not say things that made Spun look bad, and thus was not libelous. Rather, the biography made him look more heroic than he was by, for example, falsely claiming that he had earned a bronze star. Spun sought an injunction to prevent publication of this book, The War in Spun Story. The New York court ruled in Spun's favor. The court blocked further publication of the book and ordered the defendants to pay damages in the amount of $10,000. Messner appealed. In its ruling, the New York court held that such speech was constitutionally unprotected, and therefore could give rise to a tort recovery, simply because of the emotional distress that the falsehoods caused Spahn. To this day, this is a classic and often cited example of speech actionable under the false light tort and has been used in court decisions all across the country. Middle Dot in the 1967 case of Time Incorporated v. Hill, the Supreme Court of the United States invalidated a false light privacy judgment for the Hill family in the absence of proof of actual malice. James Hill and his family were held up for a day in 1952 by three escaped convicts in their home near Philadelphia. The convicts eventually released the Hill family without harm or injury. Joseph Hayes wrote a novel about the story titled The Desperate Hours, which would later be made into a Broadway play. Hayes' work portrayed a family, similar to the Hills, but in Hayes' story, the family is treated with considerable violence while held hostage. Life magazine published an article in 1955 describing the play as a reenactment, and using as illustrations photographs of scenes staged in the former Hill home. The Hill family sued Time Incorporated, publisher of Life, for invasion of privacy, reasoning that Life magazine was using their name and experience in order to increase circulation and to attract more people to the play. Time Incorporated argued that the issue was of public concern and was published in good faith without any malice whatsoever. Justice William Brennan, speaking for a five-member majority of the court, wrote that a showing of innocent or negligent false reportage is insufficient to collect damages for a false light claim. Justice John Marshall Harlan II, writing in dissent, opined that the actual malice standard, 
as set forth by the court three years earlier in New York Times Company v. Sullivan, was too stringent for false light privacy cases. Intrusion on seclusion is one of the four privacy torts created under U.S. common law. Intrusion on seclusion is commonly thought to be the bread-and-butter claim for an invasion of privacy. The other three privacy claims under U.S. tort law are public disclosure of private facts, false light, and appropriation of someone's name or likeness. Elements The elements of an intrusion on seclusion claim in tort law are intentionally intruding on the solitude or seclusion of another person or on their private affairs in a manner that would be highly offensive to a reasonable person. Intent Someone commits an intentional intrusion only if he believes, or is substantially certain, that he lacks the necessary legal or personal permission to commit the intrusive act. For example, the Veterans Administration did not intrude on a patient's seclusion when it believed that it had the patient's consent to disclose his medical records. The intent element is subjective, based on what the defendant actually knew or believed about whether it had consent or legal permission, whereas the offensiveness element is judged under an objective standard based on whether a reasonable person would consider the intrusion to be highly offensive. Seclusion In order to intrude on someone's seclusion, the person must have a legitimate expectation of privacy in the physical place or personal affairs intruded upon. To be successful, a plaintiff must show the defendant penetrated some zone of physical or sensory privacy or obtained unwanted access to data in which the plaintiff had an objectively reasonable expectation of seclusion or solitude in the place conversation or data source. For example, a delicatessen employee told co-workers that she had a staph infection. The co-workers then informed their manager, who contacted the employee's doctor to determine if she actually had a staph infection, because employees in Arkansas with a communicable disease are forbidden from working in the food preparation industry. The employee with the staph infection sued her employer, the deli, for intruding on her private affairs. The court held that the deli manager had not intruded upon the worker's private affairs because the worker had made her staff infection public by telling her two co-workers about it. The court said. When Fletcher learned that she had a staff infection, she informed two co-workers of her condition. Fletcher's revelation of private information to co-workers eliminated Fletcher's expectation of privacy by making what was formerly private a topic of office conversation. Offensiveness. In determining whether an intrusion is objectively highly offensive, a court is supposed to examine all the circumstances of an intrusion, including the motives or justification of the intruder. Websites Data Collection A website may commit a highly offensive act by collecting information from website visitors using duplicitous tactics. A website that violates its own privacy policy does not automatically commit a highly offensive act. But the Third Circuit Court of Appeals has held that Viacom's data collection on the Nickelodeon website was highly offensive because the privacy policy may have deceptively caused parents to allow their young children to use Nick.com, thinking it was not collecting their personal information. The Press The First Amendment does not immunize the press from torts or crimes committed in an effort to gather news. But the press is given more latitude to intrude on seclusion to gather important information. So many actions that would be considered highly offensive if performed by a private citizen may not be considered offensive if performed by a journalist in the pursuit of a socially or politically important story. The Law School of America This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license.
the text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. Mm-hmm.